Welcome to the EMJ Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. This week, I'm pleased to be joined by Robert Cowan, a neurologist in the Department of Neurology and Neurological Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine in Palo Alto, California, obviously over there in the US of A. We'll be talking about his career and main research interest, identifying patients with episodic migraine who are at risk for their condition becoming chronic. Robert studied philosophy and sociology at Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts, graduating magna cum laude with a Bachelor of Arts in 1972. He then completed a program in brain science at one of my old stomping grounds, the University of California in San Diego, and obtained his medical degree up the road at the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. Now he's board certified in neurology and pain and headache medicine and holds a prominent position at the Betty Higgins Family Foundation with a directorship in headache research. The good doctor has sat on numerous editorial boards, has many publications to his name, including two books and several book chapters, and has presented at multiple congresses. Robert is also a former president of the Headache Cooperative of the Pacific, He's a fellow of the American Academy of Neurology and American Headache Society and has served on the boards of a number of organizations, including the Alliance for Headache Disease Advocacy and the American Council for Headache Education, which has the magnificent and appropriate acronym ACHE. With all this knowledge and experience, it isn't a surprise that Robert could be considered a bit of a media sensation in his field. He's been featured in Vogue magazine and the New York Times and has appeared on network television. Despite his workload, he's also found time to volunteer for the Alliance for Patient Access, the Veterans Administration and community health programs. Robert is also talented outside his medical specialty. One of his hobbies is building furniture, which can be reproductions of work from the Ming and Qing dynasties, as well as the arts and crafts movement from the early 20th century. What's even more amazing is that he also designs and makes some of his own furniture, so with the precision needed for that, frankly, I'm surprised he's not a surgeon. Professor Robert Cowan, welcome to the EMJ podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Well, we're thrilled to have you, and I've got lots and lots of questions, so let's leap right on in. And a little bit of groundwork, first of all. What or who influenced you to start a career in neurology, and why did you focus on headache and migraine? I anticipated this question, and, and I actually don't have a great answer. I, as you noted, graduated from uh, undergraduate in philosophy, and as you can imagine, the philosopher's wanted column of the uh, Times is rather limited. <laughs> so I became interested in uh, teaching, actually. And my first job out of undergraduate was working with challenged children, uh, a lot of autistic children. And I just became interested in brain science. And it seemed like a, a certain good in what at the time was a pretty uncertain world. So I decided to go into medicine. Well, I'm sure everyone uh, who you've helped is very pleased that that you that you do. I must admit, you know, I was listening to actually to a, another podcast the other day um, 
oh, good Lord, was it your death? I think it was one of the BBC podcasts. And this historian always has on an academic and a comedian just to lighten the mood. And the topic was the influence of philosophy on ancient medicine. So it's not such an, you know, such a strange segue, frankly. So I'll tell you what, um, people, you know, most of the people listening to this are doctors, but there's a lot of people who listen who are not. So start at the basics. What causes headache in general? What is migraine and what are the causes? And also, how can one avoid them other than listening to loud music or banging your head against a brick wall? How much time do we have? <laughs> you have 30 seconds, go. Okay, no problem. So I think the, the, the basic question is, why do we have pain? Um, it's, it's annoying. It's painful. And headache is certainly in that category. We need pain. We, pain is what teaches a child to take their hand out of the fire. To avoid, avoid pain is, is kind of one of our, our life's missions. Uh, unfortunately, pain is not always a useful tool. And in the case of migraine, for genetic or environmental reasons, many people have a lowered threshold for pain. So one can think of migraine as, or think of people with migraine as being the canary in the mine. We have a lowered threshold for pain and we can say to the chief, I think we're, we're moving the tribe a little too close to the volcano. I don't feel well. And they sense that, that smell, for example, of the sulfur or the heat of the desert or the altitude as being uncomfortable well before the general population does. So the short answer is anyone can have a migraine. Um, it may require drilling a little burr hole in the brain and putting some cyanic acid in. But I could take you to 20,000 feet and have you do jumping jacks, and you would experience very much a headache that's similar to what a migraine sufferer might experience going over a mountain pass of two or 3,000 feet. Yeah, interesting. So I once heard that the... The difference between comedy and tragedy is this. Comedy is you get eaten by a lion. Tragedy is I get a small cut on my finger. And headache, it's sometimes minimized by those who are not sufferers and is, you know, the butt of many, many jokes. Can you characterize in a, in a sympathetic manner what it's like to live with migraine? The thought that, you know, it's not the odd episodic head, headache that we all get now and then but you know that it's going to be a part of your life. How does, it, how does it impact people? Yes. Well, you left out what for me is a very important part of my biography, and that is that I'm also a migraine sufferer. And I did not know that. Well, it's, it's only relevant because you've asked this question, um, but it does provide me with a perspective that, that many non-headache people don't have. And that is the, the stigma and bias that surrounds headache. But when you do this for a living, you see how it devastates lives. It is the number one, the number two, excuse me, low back pain is number one. It is the number two most common cause for disability in the world in terms of dailies, according to the um, World Health Organization. At least in America, it costs the economy over $15 billion a year 
in terms of lost productivity from either actual physical disability or what we call presenteeism. Presenteeism is when you show up to work, but you're not firing on all six or 12 cylinders mm -hmm. and you're just not being productive. It, when it becomes chronic you know, and you have headache every single day of, the of your life, it's, it's incredibly disabling and, um, and it's a true tragedy. So in an article, I think it was published last year, you discussed uh, computerized migraine diagnostic tools. Can you provide us with a, a brief description of those and, and pros and cons? Sure. Let, let me give a little context. Again, in the United States, there are about 800 board-certified headache specialists. There are about 60 million people with headache, of whom somewhere around 39 million have migraine, and the rest have tension type or other uh, primary or secondary headaches. So what that would mean is that as a headache specialist, I'd have to see upwards of 80,000 patients per year uh, just to hold up my, my little corner of the responsibility for providing optimal care for, um, for headache patients. Mm -hmm. So the scale issue is, is critical here. So what I and Alan Rappaport and, and others have worked on is to create a tool that would allow non-headache specialists to accurately diagnose and treat headache patients. Because the challenge is not everyone can see a headache specialist, yet everyone is certainly entitled to see a headache specialist. So what we've done is using machine learning, we've taken all of the questions that we might ask as headache specialists and created an algorithm using what's called a uh, shortest path analysis. Uh, the best example is, if I say, do you have headaches or not? And you say no, then it's a very short questionnaire. Okay. But if you say yes, then my question is, well, how many kinds of headaches, how many different headache types do you have? And you may say one, you may say three. And then we ask questions where each question feeds on the, the previous question to get to an international classification of headache disorders diagnosis. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, yeah, it does. I mean, I'm just I'm ruminating on the numbers, Rob, because is there a likelihood that there are people out there who think they've just got headaches, who've actually got migraine, and they're not being differentially treated? Yes, in fact, it's 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 not not just that they think they have headache. You know, some people think they are, have sinus headaches, for example, and if you don't have disgusting green stuff coming out of your nose and a fever, you don't have a sinus headache. Mm -hmm. You probably have migraine because the nerves to the sinuses are from the trigeminal pathway, which is the migraine network. Um, people with chronic migraine typically don't have migraine every day, but rather have maybe eight or 10 days of migraine per month but have this annoying background headache, which actually meets more the criteria for tension-type headache than it does for migraine. But what happens over time, and this is a segue into chronification, over time your brain keeps adapting to the newest information it has about the environment, and it keeps lowering and lowering its threshold for pain to the point where 
everything hurts and and they're there it's, it's constantly on the alert for threats from the environment yeah so just to clear something up um the most common type of headache would be before we get into the the main meat of this would be tension headaches so those sort of from platysma or or muscle what what what's the cause of those those guys you know it's a great question um you know tension type headache like migraine migraine is considered a primary headache and by definition primary headaches are not caused specifically by something in other words if you have a brain tumor and your head hurts that's a secondary headache if you have an infection and your head hurts that's a secondary infection. But migraine and tension type headache and cluster headache are all considered primary headaches. So whether there's a an environmental or genetic nosology associated with it, we don't really know for sure. Hmm. Okay. So um, something sort of my strata, if you will, as we say over here. I know you've done some work on neuromodulation for migraine prevention, and it's a field that I'm hugely interested in and have played in for a number of different indications. I wonder if perhaps you could address the role of neuromodulation and maybe devices more broadly um, in, in migraine treatment. Sure, sure. So traditionally, migraine and, and many other headache types have been treated pharmacologically with drugs. And because of some of the stigma we've talked about earlier, many of the drugs we've had until very recently have been drugs developed for other purposes, antidepressants, anti-seizure medicines, blood pressure modifying medications. Unfortunately, all medications have side effects. And because by nature, migraine sufferers are very sensitive to changes in the environment, whether it's the external environment, bright lights, loud sounds, or the internal environment, changes in hormone levels, um, hormones for appetite, uh, sleep, cortisol, things like that, we're more sensitive to, to these side effects. So in recent years, there's been the advent of devices, uh, usually electrically based, that are designed to modulate the way we respond to sensory input to sort of raise our, our pain threshold and make us less susceptible. Uh, so a number of devices have been developed in recent years that accomplish this. And some of them are smart devices that work with your iPhone or um, Android and a patch or a strap applied to your head or to your, to your arm. And for some of them, the data is just as strong as the pharmacologic uh, interventions. Hmm. So what, what devices are being deployed for migraine? There's percutaneous neuromodulation to, to the trigeminal, uh, transcranial uh, stimulant direct current and, and repetitive uh, transcranial magnetic. Are, are all of those modalities being deployed? And what does the literature say? Yes. So there are devices that address, as you say, the trigeminal system. So the trigeminal system are the nerves that mediate pain in the head, more or less. And there is one, for example, called Relivion that stimulates nerves on the forehead, the temples, and at the back of the head that has very strong data uh, to suggest that it can abort a headache that, that, that exists currently. Uh, there is another that involves a strap around the um, upper arm 
and is driven with a sub painful stimulus that you control with your iPhone, with your phone. I don't have stock in Apple. I just keep saying iPhone. I apologize. <laughs> and what it seems to do is it raises your threshold subtly so that you're not as susceptible to the triggers for your migraine. And we anticipate that this particular device will be uh, useful not only for aborting headaches when they start to occur, but also for prevention when used on an every other day basis. There's a third device, let me just add one more, which stimulates the vagus nerve. It's a stimulator that you actually put on, on your throat, more or less, um, that has very strong data. And again, these, all three of these devices have, been, have data that is right up there with, and sometimes better than, the data we have for um, pharmaceutical drugs. Yeah, I've, I've very, I've, you know, I've been reading this literature and following these things along, and it's it's astonishing that you know you can go back to the ancients who would use a torpedo fish, didn't they? Electric eels yeah. to to treat medical conditions and the Egyptians. They, yeah, and for people who aren't familiar, you know, the concept of neuromodulation is the delivery of external energy to induce a change in the brain um, of the nervous system, neuroplasticity. And if for those not familiar with the field and you want to get a grounding, there's an excellent documentary available online about the work of Marion Diamond, who died in California two, three years ago, I think, who was one of the first people to talk about neuroplasticity. She, she was an amazing woman. Um, so, Rob, classification words are important. So know what we're discussing, right? Please detail the difference between episodic and chronic migraine. Sure. Uh, so by definition, a migraine is a moderate to severe headache. So not all severe headaches are migraine, but a mild headache is not going to meet criteria for a diagnosis of migraine, whether episodic or chronic. An episodic migraine, by definition again, is a headache that lasts 4 to 72 hours. So a headache that comes and goes in minutes is not likely to be migraine. It tends to be a one-sided headache. It must have the presence of either nausea or the combination of light and sound sensitivity, what we call photophobia and phonophobia. There are a number of other associated features. For example, migraine is worsened by exercise, whereas tension-type headache is not. Actually, tension-type headache is often improved by exercise. Migraine tends to be a one-sided headache, but not exclusively one-sided. And by that, I mean it can be usually even 90% of the time on one side, but it should also have presentation on the other side. Any severe headache will tend to generalize. So even a migraine may start out one-sided, but after you've been in the throes of the pain for, for hours, it can generalize because you're hunching your shoulders up, you're tightening the, the muscles in your neck that support your head. Um, so the headache can generalize. So those are the main features of episodic migraine. Now, chronic migraine is an entity in which we see at least eight headache days a month that meet criteria for acute migraine, but an additional seven or more days per month in which your headaches have 
well, we call them featureless headaches. And it's critically important because if your doctor just asks you how many migraines do you have a month and you answer eight and they drop the question there, they'll get a diagnosis of acute migraine and will not be covered for, by most insurers for medications that can prevent migraine. Whereas if you ask the question, how many days are you headache-free a month, then that answer may change to, oh, well, I never am headache-free, but I only have eight bad headaches a month. So as you say, words matter. How you ask these questions makes a world of difference, not just in, in headache pain, but, but in medicine in general, in life in general, now that I think sure, about it. Sure, absolutely. Well, that's with that background, and given that your main research interest is learning how to identify patients with episodic migraine who are at risk for becoming chronic, in other words, if I understood correctly, the frequency of their migraine changes. Would you be able to detail how you're doing this and explain why it's important from a, a therapeutic and a prognostic perspective? Sure. So this is where I leave the mainstream and become a bit of a vox clementis, unfortunately. It's not just the pain. It's the nausea. It's the light sensitivity. I have patients who wear sunglasses, despite my best recommendations, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because the light is so painful. I have patients who can't work because they're so nauseated that they can't focus. So migraine is not just about the pain. It's not just about the frequency, uh, although obviously those are important things. So my feeling is that we should stage migraine in the same way that we stage cancer. In other words, we should be looking to identify patients who are stable in their migraines versus patients who are getting worse, chronifying, finding themselves more disabled, increasingly disabled. And then the task, of course, is to identify, as it is with all disease, identify early patients who are at risk for getting worse. And that, as you say, is, is the focus of my research. And the reason that's important, I, I can give you a, a very nice translational example. We have found in our laboratory that patients who have chronic migraine, and we've defined that, have measurably larger amygdala, which is a part of the brain that assigns emotional significance to sensory input. People with chronic migraine have larger amygdala volumes, and this is by volumetric imaging with MRI, mm -hmm. compared with controls. Good Lord. So that's interesting when you think, and so you start thinking, well, what, what, what goes on in the amygdala? We have a classic, is this the jockey or the horse? In other yeah. words, with big amygdalas, are they more susceptible, or more likely to chronify, or does the chronification process, worsening migraines, like a muscle a large amygdala. Exactly. Right. Isn't that interesting? So what we then did is we looked at, and this is where it gets really fun. We then looked at anxiety and something we call catastrophization, which is a little judgy, I admit, but it's a, it's a term for the person who says, I don't do this because the following might happen. So a classic example is the person who says, I've never seen my superstar daughter play soccer because I'm afraid that if I go out and watch her sitting in the sun, I will get sick, I will throw up, I'll you know, embarrass my daughter, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Um, so that's called catastrophization. And we can actually measure that. We can measure it in episodic patients, 
and identify patients who tend to catastrophize, who have high generalized anxiety scores, and then intervene while they're still episodic, perhaps with uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, perhaps with medication, and avoid this anxiety that develops, regardless of whether it's from the migraine or because of some genetic predisposition, and hopefully prevent those patients from chronifying and having them evolve from episodic migraine to chronic migraine. I'm, I'm intrigued that you said you were a vox comatis, the voice in the wilderness. You know, for people who aren't familiar with that expression, I love that kind of stuff, by the way. So thank <laughs> you. So thank you for that. Why is what you're positing um, a voice in the wilderness? I'd have thought it may it makes sense to me. I, of course, I know nothing about this field. Why is it a voice in the wilderness? Well, you know, obviously I've, I've framed it in a way that I hope would convince you of that. But, uh, <laughs> so yeah. until, until the late 80s, so not that long ago, what, 40 years ago, we had no definition for migraine, mm. you know. So it was a very subjective call, and it's still a clinical diagnosis. Um, but some of the real giants in my field, people like, yes, Olison and, and Lars Edvinson, set out to, to create criteria, diagnostic criteria. And for research purposes, it's very useful to, to look at patients who have headaches so often that they would benefit from prevention. And this is from the, the, the time when we only had pharmacologic inter interventions from people who have occasional headaches and wouldn't need to take a medicine every day, but only when they have a headache. And so the criteria for episodic and chronic migraine evolved from this research perspective, the notion that we needed to identify two different groups because the treatment options seem to vary. Well, that's, that, that, that's a very good segue, right? So once you've identified uh, or discovered how to identify patients who are at risk of chronification, what, what treatments are available to prevent that progression from episodic to chronic? That is, you know, if I had the answer to that question, I'd be packing my bags for Sweden, you know, to accept that. <laughs> but what we do know, and what is so frustrating for patients and providers, is that you can have two people who have the same diagnosis for one, treatment A works great, but does nothing for, for, uh, the other for another patient. Um, and another patient, treatment B works great, but doesn't have any benefit for, treatment a, for patient A. This is very confusing and frustrating, as you can imagine. Uh, we don't see that, for example, if you have a, a viral infection or a bacterial infection, probably a better example, there is an antibiotic that kills that bacteria. We give you that correct antibiotic, the infection gets better. We don't have that in migraine. So for one person, a blood pressure medicine may be the perfect solution for preventing their migraines, but does nothing for, for the person next to them with the same diagnosis. Uh, so the challenge is triggers are, for almost everyone, are partial and additive. It's the rare person that comes into my office and says, boy, every time I eat blueberries, I get a migraine. I love those patients because I can say something really brilliant, like don't eat blueberries. Yeah, there you go. Um, but that's very rare. It's more often, you know, well, it seems like when I skip a meal, I, I might get a headache, but sometimes I don't, you know, or if I didn't sleep well, I, I can 
get a headache, but sometimes I won't sleep well and I don't get a headache. Same can be true for red wine or processed meats. Um, so this makes it very challenging for people to try and figure out how to live their lives in a, in a migraine protective way. So there are probably subsets, and now we're, we're coming back to, to um, the chronification issue. There are probably subsets within episodic and chronic migraine who, using big data tools like uh, machine learning, can actually classify. So I can say, yes, you have episodic migraine, but you're more similar to these 840,000 patients who have a profile like yours and responded well to topiramate or responded well to onobotulinum toxin, which is Botox in this country, than you are to this other population that didn't respond to those medicines and did much better with cognitive behavioral therapy or uh, an antidepressant therapy. Interesting. So um, another question I've had about migraines in, in general, we know that some people with migraine have auras before or during a migraine episode. Can you detail what those auras are? I believe there are smells and such like. And why do people with migraine get them? And there's also like um, flashing lights and such like. What, what, t- talk to us about auras, please. Sure, sure. So again, going back to this international classification of headache disorders, version three is where we are now. An aura is a symptom that precedes the pain of migraine. And that definition has expanded over time and changed over time. Uh, But typically, and most commonly, it's a visual phenomenon which travels across your visual field. It's not a fixed, you know, like a a hole in your vision. Um, So it's a dynamic process. It often will precede the migraine pain and other symptoms by a variable amount of time and will last anywhere from 20 to 180 minutes. And it can, it can continue into the migraine. It can come during the migraine. It can even follow the migraine rarely. The significance of it, however, is another question. It's been very good for research models but the, the actual clinical significance is hard to call because for some patients, if you treat during the aura period, you can avoid the pain. Um, others, you just have to wait for the pain component to begin before the, preve- the acute treatments are effective. Aura symptoms don't have to be visual. They can be sensory, so numbness, tingling, dysesthesias, as we call them. Uh, they can be motor so actual weakness on one side of the body. Uh, there can be speech arrest, difficulty speaking or articulating or finding words. But these are all kind of non-pain, non-light sensitivity or sound sensitivity phenomena that accompany the migraine. The significance, we're not really sure. My personal view is that the migraine has to start somewhere. And if it starts in the part of the brain that is associated with vision, you may see a visual aura. If it starts in an area of the brain which we call ineloquent, meaning we don't, we don't hear or see it, then it just our first awareness comes with the, with the pain. Um, so that's sort of the best answer I can give you for, what, for why we see, see aura. Yeah. It's another element as to why this is such a fascinating condition, truly. So, 
Um, as we wrap up, um, I've got a sort of a, a bit of a flippant question, really. If you were looking for a special centerpiece for one of your beautiful handmade tables and you came across an old brass lamp that you polished and out popped a genie who granted you three wishes to improve healthcare. What would Professor Cowan ask for? Well, let's be clear. My table should not have anything on top of them. <laughs> okay. The beauty of the brain should, should speak for itself. <laughs> <laughs> well said. I consider myself <laughs> chastised. <laughs> You know, I mean, I, I think there's, you know, there's all the all the standard answers, you know, I, I would end pain, I would end suffering. I think, I don't know if you can be practical, you know, when considering what to wish for with your lamp. I, by the way, spend a lot of time in this fantasy world. Um, yeah. Yeah. I would love to see universal health care. I just, I think it's insane that this is not a basic human right when we have so many wonderful tools to diagnose and treat patients. I think it's, it's, it's not something that could be for the wealthy only. Yeah. 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 That's, that's, that's one thing. Um, I think that, you know, there should be better training of individuals to learn about their bodies, uh, so that they have a better understanding of what goes on in your body. Um, so that things like anti-vaxxing concepts just have no foothold. I don't know. To be honest, I, I don't spend a lot of time what-ifing. I'm kind of more consumed with, you know, using what we've got to do what we can. Yeah. You know, just earlier, I mentioned philosophy at the beginning, philosophy and ancient medicine. And in this podcast, they also reference the fact that the, the rise of the monotheistic uh, religions led to the organization of healthcare such that it was a provision, you know, the concept of humanity looking after its own, arms for the poor, um, you know, hospitals, the word derives from hospitality, um, being kind. And you and I, having been privileged to be physicians, have dedicated our lives to trying to do good things for people. And I'm with you. I mean, how you pay for stuff, that's got to be figured out. But I, I'm totally with you. Until we have universal access to care and resolve it, um, we, you know, we as, a, we as a race will never achieve what we could achieve otherwise. I don't forget we were we were priests. Go back a few hundred years, doctors and doctors were priests. And my lot was surgeon. You know, barber. We were. You were, bar you were You were a barber. I was a priest. There's you were a priest. There you go. I'm afraid that that's all that we've got time for. I really want to thank you, Professor Robert Cowan, for taking the time to talk to us today, giving us all an insights into the work that you do. It's been wonderful talking to you, and I wish, as someone who tried very hard as a woodworker and was really quite pathetic, I'd love to see some of your pieces one of these days. I'll send you some pictures. Thank you. This has been a delight. Thank you so much. So, folks, please join us next week for another EMJ podcast as we embark into a, a foray into the fascinating world of medicine and, who knows, carpentry. Until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakir, and thank you for listening to the EMJ podcast. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now. Bye.